You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You are listening to episode 400 of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, it's episode 400. We have been doing this show for a long damn time. 400 week? What? I can't you believe heard it. it. I can't believe in in one way, it feels like, you know, we just just a couple of young whippersnappers still just started out with our own podcast. And another way, it feels like I've been doing this podcast all of my natural life. Yeah. It, it seems like multiple lifetimes to me. Yeah. And somehow, still, still going. 400 Man, goddamn we, episodes. That doesn't even count like power hours and drinking challenges and live watches and all the other shit we've done. We started this podcast in May of 2012. So eight damn years ago this month. Are you ready for your co-main event podcast 400 episode trivia challenge? Okay. All right. Wait, hold on. Let me, let me get myself in the right headspace. Okay, I'm there. Now, this should be pretty easy. You didn't know this was coming. The people at home are hearing this live as you are hearing it for the first time. Co-Main Event Podcast, Episode 400 Trivia Challenge. Ben, when we started the Co-Main Event Podcast, who was the UFC heavyweight champion? Oh, wow. Okay. The UFC heavyweight champion. When we started... Don't look it up. I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to say... Kane Velasquez. Incorrect. It was Junior oh, Dos Santos. Oh, that was going to be my next guess. Ben, when we started this podcast, who was the UFC welterweight champion? George St. Pierre. Correct, but with yeah. a caveat. Uh-oh. Carlos Condit was the interim champ. You can't hold me to that. You can't, you can't expect me to know the interim champs, too. I don't recognize ben, those. When we started this podcast, who was the UFC lightweight champion? Frankie Edgar? Incorrect. Benson Benson Henderson. Henderson. Ah, see? Ben, last question. Okay. When we started this podcast, who was the UFC men's bantamweight champion? The Monster Hennon Brow? It was Dominic Cruz. Oh shit! For the for the very first time. Wow. So that that puts it in perspective. That'll let you know how long we've been doing this. A long damn time. It's been a ride. That's it what I can say. Has been it. a ride. You got anything special planned for episode four hundred? You know, Chad. As a matter of fact, I do. I've been working on this. Uh, this has been weeks, maybe even months worth of work, and. Now is probably a good time to tell you that I spent a lot of our Patreon money on this Great. because it you know wasn't easy and it certainly wasn't cheap, but I felt like 400 episodes that really needed something special. So 
I secured us a special musical guest that will be appearing between rounds to play our between round music. And man, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think that you're going to agree once you hear it, that this was many thousands of dollars well spent. And if you don't if agree, I, it's too late because I already spent it. If I recall correctly, uh, wasn't there a music fiasco on about episode 100 of the co-main event podcast? By music fiasco, I think you mean an unmitigated success. Uh, but this is even better. Like this one, both in terms of awesomeness and expense to us personally, this one far outstrips that one. Oh, great. Good. Yeah, no, I'm excited to hear this music. Uh, I I can only imagine what it is. I can literally only imagine what it is. I can't is. wait. Very exciting. Well, folks, free preview week has ended over at the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon page, but a little birdie told me that as we record this, the free preview content is still up for free. So if you haven't done that, go over to Co-Main Event Podcast uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. This in- instant, you can uh, you can listen to the Movie Club episode about Foxcatcher. You can listen to a couple of our listener-centric live chats. You can even listen to Friday's Power Hour where, Ben, we took a stroll through Alaska Fighting Championships 155, which I think can only be described as as wild as hell. You know, I've become a AFC fan after that one. I'm going to become a full-time AFC head, you might say. You're going to be a, a hipster, AFC hipster. You're going to have one of those uh, AFC t-shirts with the flames on them that we saw during Alaska Fighting Championship 155. I'm gonna, From now on, whenever I watch fights, the only question I want to know is how did you prepare for this fight? And I really hope the answer is, you know, not, not that hard. Like played a little hoops, did some full court, full court hoops. So we got our cardio in. Uh, other than that, hit the heavy bag a few times and called it good. Grabbed my, my basketball shorts and jumped in the cage. You and everybody else on the Alaska Fighting Championship 155 card. Uh, Don't forget, guys, you can run out and get your CME logo t-shirts right now over at CottonBureau.com. We got those for sale. We got Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirts for sale. We got Dundasso t-shirts for sale. Those are available all the time on demand whenever you want them. Just go over to CottonBureau.com and get some CME merchandise today. This would normally be the time when I tell you who's doing the music for today's episode of the show, but I have no idea. Ben has a surprise cooked up for us. I can hardly wait. I'm so So excited. So we're all going to hear that at the same time. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, finally, the fight we've all been waiting for. Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje? Nah, just playing. Nobody asked for that fight, but it should still be fun as hell. And in round number two, speaking of fights nobody asked for, Henry Cejudo defends the men's bantamweight crown against Dominic Cruz in a short-notice fight. And honestly, isn't a short-notice fight amid a a pandemic actually the perfect time for Cruz to roll in there and get that title shot? And in round number three, one final time. Here's everything we think we know about safety ahead of UFC 249. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Eagle Scholar Grimson. Nailed it. I believe an early, uh, here I, I had this, uh, I had this Googled earlier, but I just want to check it out one more time. Make sure I get this right here. 
a Viking age poet, warrior, and farmer known okay. mainly as the protagonist of Eagle's Saga. See, when I hear the name Eagle Skull or Grimson, I definitely don't think, well, that certainly is not a Viking Age poet and warrior and scholar. Because honestly, once you hear that descriptor, you're like, yeah, that, that checks out. I don't need to do any other research. That just sounds like that's what that person would be named. Eagle Scholar Grimson. So he writes, let's do a Zen Buddhist exercise and clear our minds of all preconceived notions. Okay. Let's let's forget about politics. Let's forget about health and safety. Let's try to forget about uh, non-existent training camps and the completely inane interim title. Let's even try to forget about Habib versus Tony for a minute. With our minds completely devoid of context, coherence, and logic, isn't UFC 249 pretty much the most fun card the UFC has put on in a very, very long time? It's the type of card... Even the early prelims have a fight like Vicente Luque versus Nico Price, which sounds like all sorts of fun. Jacare versus Uriah Hall makes a lot of sense. So does Cowboy versus Pettis at this stage in their careers. We get the returns of Fabricio Verdum and Dominic Cruz. Francis Ngano versus Rosenstruck sounds crazy. And the main event in a vacuum is one of the greatest matchups you could make in a lightweight division. It's a card so good, you don't even need to mention that Greg Hardy's on there somewhere. Can we at some point, as intelligent, responsible human beings... Just let ourselves enjoy the shit out of this without feeling kind of bad about it. That's an interesting thought experiment here from a Viking Age poet. And I guess that's exactly the kind of email you'd expect from such a person. And yet we don't live in that world. I mean, I agree on the, the broad strokes here about this. When you look at this fight card just as it exists on paper, and if you forget about all the other questions and context, you have to look at this matchup by matchup and be like, yeah. This is a really good fight card, the kind that the UFC used to do more often and now doesn't do so much now that you have to spread everything out across so many different events. Just has, I mean, it has the direct benefit of having all these other fighting events canceled in recent weeks because then you take basically the best stuff from a lot of those and you mash it all together for one really good monster pay-per-view. And I agree. It's an awesome fight card. I still don't think it's the most awesome. I mean, hey, Ryan Spawn versus Sam Alvey is on there too. But still, I think this is a really good fight card. And yet, we can't just completely shove our heads in the sand and pretend none of this other stuff is going on. I mean, I think most importantly, I can maybe get on the board with the let's try to forget about Khabib versus Tony for a minute. Like, let's not think about what we wanted. Let's think about what we got, especially if what we got is still pretty good. But the question about how everybody has managed to cobble together training, that seems to me like a, still a big unanswered question that we're going to need to see what that looks like in real life. Because it's entirely possible that everybody shows up here and we start to realize, yeah, these guys are – this is some dudes who had to do burpees in the garage to get ready for this one and not you know, best training camp of their lives type material that we're used to seeing. Yeah, and isn't the depth of card – and the relative expectations of for excitement, like kind of a conscious decision by the UFC. Like they had this unforeseen event where they had to cancel numerous fight cards right in a row. So they had, they had this, this uh, sudden glut, this like uncharacteristic availability of all this talent that they could then go in. And despite the fact that they lost the main event because Habib Nurmagomedov tried to do everything he could to be available – uh, 
they had to cobble that together, but they had all these fighters out here who need to get paid, who want to fight, who are getting ready for fights anyway. And so they were able to, to scrape together this really stacked fight card. And I think that, the, you know, obviously I think they did it on purpose. Like I think part of the plan here, if you can put yourself inside the mind brain of Dana White for a minute, was probably to be like, all right, well, these fuckers say we can't do a fight card. We're going to put on a fight card that when it happens, nobody's going to be able to complain about it because it's going to be so awesome. And it speaks to the, the as we've you know referenced many times in the past, the embarrassment of riches that the UFC has in terms of just its, its overall fight roster, its overall roster of fighters, the talent that is at its disposal from one minute to the next. Just incredible that they can they can put together a UFC 249 card amid this pandemic. And you know what? For the two or three hours that it happens, depending on how it actually looks on our televisions and whether or not everybody's wearing masks or whatever, maybe we will be able to forget. Maybe we'll be able to forget about health and safety. Maybe we'll be able to forget about the pandemic. Uh, maybe we'll be able to forget that this could be uh, one of the most cynical displays in the history of modern professional sports for the UFC to forge ahead with these three events for no other reason really than they need to make the money. Uh, maybe we can forget about all that stuff as the event is happening. I hope we can, because as we sit here uh, on May the 4th, like I'm excited that this episode of the CME that we're doing is a fight week episode. I'm excited to get into rounds one and two and actually talk about Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje and talk about Henry Zahudo versus Dominic Cruz. And so, yeah, man, I, I hope that like on Saturday night, if the way that you choose to be entertained by this event, the way you choose to partake in this event is to just, just sit back, watch the fights. Hopefully they're awesome. Forget about the troubles of the outside world for a minute. I hope that happens. And anyone who wants to uh, enjoy this fight card that way, more power to them, frankly. But that's not the test of this fight card. Yeah. The test of this true. fight card is what happens in the days leading up to it. And what happens in the weeks after it? And I know we will talk about health and safety concerns more in round number three, but like just putting on an awesome fight card is one thing. It's another thing if, if somebody's grandma gets sick and dies. And, you know, as we sit here, I hope that the UFC does uh, everything it can to prevent that. And I hope that they get through these three events uh, unscathed and we can get back to a more or less normal schedule of fights or whatever happens next. But, you know, we can't, we don't have the luxury of saying that that's a, a given, that that's a, a, a thing that will 100% will happen. And that more than anything else is, is the story of this fight card, not necessarily if the fights are good or bad. Okay. To piggyback on Eagle Scholar Grimson's question, though, before we move on, let me ask you this. Do you think once fight night rolls around and there's going to be that little tingle in the, the the tummy, little butterflies floating around when you realize, oh shit, there's actually a UFC fight night again tonight, and it's a big one, and it's going to have a bunch of exciting stuff on it. You get that kind of big fight excitement feeling, plus it's been almost two damn months since we've seen any live fights from the industry leader in MMA. Do you think that once you get a few fights into this card, if everything looks fairly decent, like let's say nobody has a trouble, nobody has problems making weight. There's some suggestions that people did manage to get their training in. People look pretty normal. They look pretty good. You get three or four fights in. You're having a good time. Do you think that you'll be able to, at least in the moment, be like, all right, we won't have answers to a lot of these big questions about health and safety, as you said, for probably weeks after the event. So I might as well just enjoy what I'm seeing right now. Or do you think that it'll just be so unusual that, I mean, no crowd, the, the cloud of the entire pandemic hanging over this thing. You can't not talk about it. It's, it's right there in your face with how the event is going to be presented. 
it's going to feel different. It's going to feel kind of weird. Do you think that you will never be able to just kind of get into that dream state of here's an awesome fight night? I think that if Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje are out there throwing them bungalows, rolling around all crazy, barrel rolling across the cage, having the Cracker Jack fight that we think that they are capable of, we will be able to forget about it for a few minutes. And I think that that could be true for a lot of the fights on this card. I mean, we mentioned several of them in the question, you know, uh, Francis Ngannou versus the biggie boy. If those two big, big guys are out there throwing lumber around, uh, knocking each other senseless, we're not going to be thinking about the coronavirus for the 45 seconds that that fight lasts. We're going to be enjoying the fight. And I hope that that's true of many of these fights, you know, and the Henry Cejudo and Dominic Cruz get into a chess match or whatever happens. I think that we are going to be able to enjoy those fights, but I also know that my brain is going to be thinking about it every so often. And I don't know how much, I don't know how much that's going to cloud this, this actual event. Like clearly if everybody at cage side is wearing masks, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to forget it. You know, if, if the look and feel of this pay-per-view event is, is different, than uh than what we normally get i think you're not going to be able to forget it and like if you have social media going and there's there's uh comments and stuff flying around all, all night long that that have to do with the pandemic and testing and et cetera, et cetera you're not going to be able to forget it so i want to enjoy the fights and i think that the fights are going to be good enough to enjoy them but at the same time like i don't think you can also forget the state of what's going on in the world right now either yeah next question this week comes to us from tommy jarvis who writes uh, while possibly just saying stuff on Reddit, Dana White posted uh, uh, positing Tough will return soon, but can Tough and Dana White's contender series coexist? One year from now, pick one. Either Tough stays dead and the contender series rolls on, or Tough is back, but the contender series is dead, or both are in rotation because fuck it, which seems most likely. Both are in rotation because fuck it. Yeah, absolutely, just, man. Just based on how we know that the UFC likes to do things. Because, I mean, I think that the premise of this question is valid. I, I saw this too where Dana White did a Reddit AMA thing and he told people tough is coming back soon, I believe in all caps. And I just don't know if that garners the kind of enthusiasm from fans that he seems to think it will. Because at this point, I, don't, I just don't know if we have much need of tough in our lives. And I agree that Dana White Contender Series – basically does the same thing but is a better and more succinct version of it where you can just watch the fights and not deal with people doing the same exact shit in the same exact house with the same tired narratives projected onto the whole thing we've just seen that so often the contender series you you still get you know new talent that you manage to for the UFC's purposes you know shuffle into these entry level contracts that are very advantageous to you you don't have to spend a whole lot of resources or investment in acquiring them and then maybe a few of them pan out and turn out pretty big for you and even if they don't you don't need it to work that often because you're just churning out content but i think the UFC is so focused on churning out so much content that it looks at it and goes well why don't we do both who cares if anybody watches it all yeah, the last several years of the UFC's corporate history, and especially in the wake of the sale to Endeavor and now the ESPN, ESPN Plus era, restraint has not been the order of the day. Yeah. Right? The order of the day has been, let's churn out as much content as, as we can and the off chance that this also makes us as much money as it possibly can. And I agree with you in principle that the Ultimate Fighter feels like it's had its day. You know, it, it, at the when it, when it came out in 2005 – 
Uh, it felt necessary. It felt really uh, vital. It felt really kind of cutting edge and it was exciting. You fast forward 25 or 28 damn seasons, however many, many there have been, 2020, the form itself just feels a little less relevant. I don't know, you know, aside from whatever that uh, Netflix reality show, Too Hot to Handle, that's going right now, I don't, I don't know that reality shows are really on the tip of anybody's tongue anymore. Uh, and I think that in in this day, the Tuesday White, the Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series is just does a better, more efficient job of giving the people what they actually want from that format. Now, you might get a handful of fighters or a bunch of fighters that aren't really what we might consider UFC quality, but you get to skip a lot of the the somewhat tired house hijinks and things like that, and go straight into the fights, which I think for the majority of fans is is what we want. But that's not going to stop the UFC from running both these things simultaneously, especially not, you know, if if the ultimate fighter is either a fight pass product or a ESPN plus product, there's not going to be very much ex- expectation in terms of like ratings or what tough needs to deliver. It's just it just can kind of be there. And so I think under that uh, that umbrella of expectations or lack of expectations is maybe the best way to put it. You know, they can they can keep doing tough forever. You know what I maybe really wouldn't want to do after a pandemic has shut everything down and had us already isolated and stuff in our homes is get into a reality show house with like 15 pro fighters. Yeah. I mean, maybe you'd be like, Hey, this is the safest possible time to be quarantined in a house with a bunch of people. And we can't leave anyway, except to go back and forth to the gym. But also, I don't know, man, I feel like uh, a lot of people, our sanity might be already a little bit frayed to begin with right now. Here's a question that uh, rolls right off the back of this one from Shane Biggs, who writes, the lockdown has got me binging old tough seasons, and I was wondering who your pick is for the best fighter from the show's alums. I know you've considered who is the quote unquote most successful fighter, uh, but I'm talking about who would you pick in their prime to win a fight tomorrow? My pick is Tony. Where's your kid at Ferguson? Uh, But there are plenty of other compelling choices. Please discourse. Um, I mean, we get to pick these people in their prime, right? I, sure. I don't know that there's a better pick out there than Tony Ferguson, but there've been, there've been lots of great fighters come off tough. You know, we've got, we've got champions Rashad Evans, Forrest Griffin. You got, uh, you got people like, uh, Diego Sanchez. You got, uh, you know, uh, Michael a lot Chiesa. of Stan. He's a good yeah, one. Michael Chiesa. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, you know what I was thinking about? Somebody was asking about this, uh, in my mailbag today and I was reading the story that, uh, our own Sean Alshadi and Greg Rosenstein have up on uh, the athletic about where people, opponents uh, and past training partners and people who know Tony Ferguson talking about the way he goes about handling his business. And some of them had been on that season of the ultimate fighter with him talking about how he dealt with it and everything. It made me realize that especially going into a weird uh, UFC event like this one, and somebody was asking his age and experience going to come in handy for these people. And I think one of the things that's really going to come in handy is who can adapt the best to the weird circumstances of this fight, both before the fight and training and then the the weird fight week of it and all that stuff. And then showing up to fight in an empty arena, like all that stuff is going to be different. Who's going to be the most flexible and the most adaptable to be able to deal with that. And sometimes I think age and experience works against some guys because as you know, Chad, some of us, as we age, we tend to get a little bit more rigid and inflexible in uh, our habits and in things that we expect and the way we want the world to be. And I think some people, though, like Tony Ferguson, are, have already shown a better ability to just kind of roll with that stuff. And when you're already one of the sports' top weirds mobiles, 
it doesn't bother you maybe as much to roll into a weird fight week that's just not the same as it usually is. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this is also a difficult question to ask because we don't have a complete picture of all of the people. You know what I mean? Like uh, Michael Chiesa, for example, if he's been on a real roll lately, if you asked us again in two or three years who's the best fighter to come off of tough, maybe there's people out there that are still putting their resumes together that would be more top of mind than they are now. Yeah, fair point. Next question this week comes to us from Leif Lokit or Lockett Olson. Has he included a nickname for himself here? That's nice of him. As if times weren't trying enough, it looks like Platinum Mike Perry and the Platinum Princess on-again, off-again relationship is now off again. The post, which seemingly confirmed their latest breakup, has Mike Perry posting a video of a woman he calls, quote, the love of his life, twerking in a drive through window. What does this tell you about the nature of love and what, if anything, can we learn from it? Well, we appreciate that question from Swedish television host, sports journalist, radio host, and dance band singer, Leif Oscar Lokit Olsen. Wow, a real renaissance man, a jack of all trades. Doing a little bit of everything. And if you go to his Wikipedia page, you can see him wearing a pretty sweet sweater in there. Just looking Swedish as fuck. Okay. Uh, Ben, are you broken up about the, about, uh, the platinum princess and and Mike Perry? Because I know you just, you just saw these guys when you were out in Portland, right? You know, I, I feel like this is one of those romances where the, the book is not closed on it. We're not, it's not going to be over that easy. These two. You're telling me the, the great love story of, uh, Mike Perry and the platinum princess is yet to find its last chapter. This is going to be one of those love stories that spans decades, probably multiple continents, uh, maybe a world war or two. And uh, let's just let's take a long view here. A pandemic could span a global pandemic. I think that we're all going to come out stronger at the end, at least in in terms of their relationship. Man, you weren't kidding about this picture of Leif Olson. Yeah. He's wearing he look he looks smart in this sweater with the uh, shirt under it. I have I got to be honest with you, though. Uh, have a little bit of a hard time imagining this guy as a quote dance band singer. Well, unless that uh, dance band was circa the 1960s. Uh, okay, so the video of uh, Mike Perry's "The Love of His Life" uh, twerking in a drive-through window. I mean, for one thing, it seems like she's a barista. Like, so that's to give us some context there, and not not so much twerking. She just she she gives Mike a little bit of a shake, and he he man, of course manages to put it on Instagram uh, with the hashtag, my girl needs 10,000 followers. Hashtag, can y'all make that happen? Hashtag, thanks. Uh, the thing is, though, like, I don't see, I don't see what her handle is. So okay. how, are we, <laughs> how are we supposed to get her those followers, Mike? I don't. Well, nobody, nobody said it was perfect. Nobody said it was a perfect plan, Ben. Okay. I still, I mean. The a, a love as strong as Platinum Mike Perry and the Platinum Princess. I mean, they both got it right there in their names, Chad. You're not just throwing that out the window just like that. It, it's it's going to come back around. Mark my words. Remember I said this. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Eric Sandin or Eric Sandine. Eric Sandin, who writes, given the lack of regular training in gyms for this string of UFC events that are upon us, do you think that we will see a lot of fighters miss weight and or peg out into the red on the Coleman index. <laughs> See, that is for me a big question about this because you, I've, I've talked to some of the people who 
were on the original UFC 249 card, planning on going to the Tashi Palace in Lemoore, California. And this was before the UFC was telling them where it was. This was back when they were just telling them like, hey, stay ready and we're going to let you know. Uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of people who, like some people, they own their own gyms. Like, you know, Combo Worthy is one of the guys I talked to. He owns his own gym. I talked to Ben Rothwell. He owns his own gym. Some of the fighters who have uh, fighters like have bouts coming up during this week of fights, they have a better situation. And other people were like, and I was cobbling my train together from three different gyms and they're all closed now and I'm trying to figure something out. So like, I think that it's not necessarily going to hit everybody equally. And I think also some people are going to have a tougher time managing the weight cut during all of this than other people. So I, I think it's that's the, the big question mark and the big variable for me in every single one of these fights. It's just like some people have more resources or better resources for this kind of thing and other people just kind of have to figure it out the best they can. And you might see some of those people fighting each other in one of these bouts over the next you know, week of fights. And uh, I think it might end up being kind of obvious, especially if we see a bunch of people miss weight. I think we're all going to go, okay, we should have seen this coming. Yeah, especially when you you know, you know read about somebody like Michelle Watterson, who's essentially only had her husband, uh, who's also her manager, Josh Gomez, uh, as her training partner. They were basically got, got ready for this fight just kind of by themselves, according to published reports, because Jackson Winklejohn was, was mostly shuttered over in Albuquerque, so they didn't have the, the regular training camp. And then you contrast that with somebody like Charles Rosa, who I talked to for a story for The Athletic that comes out, I think, tomorrow, sometime this week, uh, who trains at American Top Team in one of their satellite locations in Boca Raton, Florida. And after Florida declared professional sports and essential business like American top team was essentially able to reopen all their facilities and like they were social distancing a little bit. So like Charles, instead of having like an entire room full of elite guys to train with Charles Rosa told me he just had like three or five training partners to work out with, but he also had, you know, his regular coaches, Mike Brown, Charles McCarthy, people like that. So like, it didn't sound like his training camp had been all that affected. So you are going to have people coming in from different parts of the country who have had completely different experiences getting ready for this, for this fight card. And that might show. And that's one of the things that like all along, we've talked about them trying to do UFC 249 amid this climate all along. We have, we've indicated like, how can you even like have these fights without putting something of a question mark behind them? Like, you know, let's say Justin Gaethje upsets Tony Ferguson, knocks him out, wins the UFC lightweight interim championship. Like, are we satisfied that that's like an accurate result or do we have to run it back at some point when these two guys can get real training camps in? It's hard to know. And so that's one of the real unknowns here. And one of the things that's probably going to loom over UFC 249, no matter, no matter how it happens. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been distracted just recently by looking at the other Instagrams featuring Mike Perry and his new girl. Um, for one thing, they seem to be participating in what Mike Perry refers to as the flip your girl challenge, which I didn't know was a thing, but, uh, let's just say I'm sending you a link. I'm sending you a link. This is some important information that you need to be aware of. I'm over here trying to give a cogent, responsible answer about UFC 249 while you're over there checking out Mike Perry's Instagram. I mean, in that way, this is just another week of the CME for us. This is, this is pretty typical. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can go ahead and sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is in, is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right it- now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. We're going to hear this music Ben oh, Folks yeah. has cooked up for I'm, us, perhaps. I'm very excited. There it is. Okay. Uh, Andrei Zelezniov and the Episcopal Choir of the Nizhny Novgorod Diocese, everybody. Put your hands hey. together. Wow, really, really peeking it, out the audio there, trying to shout these guys out. This is, um, this is like some Fedor music, right? Is this the music Fedor walks out to? These are Fedor's boys. This cost a lot of money, Chad, and a lot of, I mean, I had to go through a lot of translators, some shady Russian figures. One of these guys insisted on uh, being paid in dried fish, but okay. honestly, it was all worth it. And I think we're, we're hearing exactly why right now. Just let it wash over you. You know, what this puts me in the mood to do is uh, take my shirt off uh-huh. and then go go jogging through the uh, through the taiga with my uh, military fatigue pants on and the rest of the Red Devil Sports Club uh, all around me. We're just going dr- to jog through some burned out military complexes. I'm taking my boxing gloves and my kettlebells to the park for a workout. That's what this music does for me. Wow. Well, that's... That's really something. I'm glad that you uh, you unloaded the coffers to uh, to have that happen. That was really very special. Just Thanks thousands so much. of dollars and ruples. Well, Ben, it's Monday, and as we sit here, roughly five days before the scheduled date for UFC 249, it actually seems like this thing might happen. And as everybody knows, this is the UFC's third attempt at getting this event to come off. The first, obviously, was set for Brooklyn, New York last month. Then there was Tachi Palace out there in Lemoore, California. Now we're headed to Jacksonville, Florida, down there at the granddaddy of them all, the Veterans, oh, I'm sorry, the Star Veterans Arena. Uh, our main event, pretty good, considering all the chaos surrounding this fight card, Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje for the interim UFC lightweight title. To get this round started, I guess, Ben, tell me what you like about this fight, and then tell me what you don't like about it. I like that both these guys come in here with things that we know they are very good at. And there are different things for both those guys. And yet, I'm interested to see how they go about solving the problem of the other guy. Because one thing, it's like with Tony Ferguson, he never even really seems to think about what the other guy is going to do. right? Like He's always just he's inventing stuff on the fly out there and not afraid to barrel roll out of nowhere if that's what he feels is necessary in the situation throwing strikes from odd angles and then with odd timing and really hard for people to adjust to and yet justin gaethje's the kind of guy where you kind of only need to fuck that up once and eat one hard shot from justin gaethje and that could be it for you plus gaethje feels like one of those fighters where he can do more than we are used to seeing him do like we know that the guy can, he can wrestle a little bit if he needs to he just usually chooses not to. And you, I, I'm interested to see like how Tony's style fits against that thing. But I also, I mean, the thing for me with Justin Gaethje is he 
the way he's chosen to fight for much of his career, he does a few fairly simple things really, really well. Like nothing too fancy or too complicated. And I think like there's a there's something about that simplicity that really works for him just because like, you kind of know what he's going to do, but it's still going to be a problem for you to deal with. And I wonder how he goes about adapting that to fight somebody like Tony Ferguson, because we've seen that in times like some of the fights that Justin Gaethje had, like with Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier and stuff, you could see him as the fight wore on. He would just kind of go into a defensive shell when he wasn't throwing. It was like he would kind of stand there and cover up and it's not, that difficult for some of those better fighters to find a way through that stuff. You can imagine Tony Ferguson is going to be one of those guys. He's going to find his way through those defenses if you're just kind of standing there covering up. But also Justin Gaethje kind of doesn't mind that. Like he is going to stand there and be willing to trade with you, be willing to take some physical punishment and just believes that he's going to be tougher and he's going to, he's going to land the more decisive punch down the stretch when it matters. I'm really interested to see how that plays with all the stuff Tony Ferguson does. Yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned earlier in the show the uh, the story that's up on The Athletic right now by Greg Rosenstein and, and Sean Alshadi, where they basically went around and tried to talk to all of these people uh, that had either been around Tony Ferguson at some point or been you know training partners or opponent of Tony Ferguson at some point. And I really liked what Landon uh, Venato said about uh, comparing fighting styles to speaking languages where he's like, everybody has their own language. And if you listen to languages, you know, you might be saying the same thing, but it's going to sound different in all these different languages and languages, languages all have their own rhythms. And it's the same way with fighters. We all have our own, our own rhythms. And sometimes uh, you get in the cage and fight somebody. It's about trying to figure out the rhythm of their language and then like how to compete with it. And there's nobody out there that has a language similar to Tony Ferguson, that it's, it's completely off the wall, like the rhythm of how he fights, the pressure of how he fights, the cardio that he brings to the table, all of that is is very difficult to to figure out. And for a guy like Justin Gaethje, who may have been training this for training for this for a while, but essentially comes in on short notice in some ways, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with that. Because I think we think of Justin Gaethje as having a far more straightforward language, if you will, of how he fights, because we we all know what to expect from him. Even though I think one of the things about Justin Gaethje is that he has systematically exceeded those expectations. Like he seems to me like he's actually more of a brawler, or I mean more than a brawler, despite the fact that like that's kind of the way he likes to to fight and and uh that's what we expect from him. I think he has more diverse skills. I think he's better than that. Clearly he's won enough fights to prove that he's better than that. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to, to me to see if Gaethje can't finish Tony Ferguson early, which I think is probably his best chance here. He's going off as a slight underdog in this fight as well, by the way. Uh, how will he figure out that language? How will he combat the very, very strange and hard to prepare for style that Tony Ferguson has? And I think if this fight happened on paper or it happened in a computer simulation, Tony Ferguson probably wins you know, 90 out of a hundred, but it's out there happening in real life. And it's happening under a situation where we can't know how everybody's been training. And so Justin Gaethje, as always, remains a very, very live dog in this fight. He's the kind of guy who could win with one punch. So I think, you know, while I expect Tony Ferguson to emerge as, you know, the two-time, two-time UFC interim 155-pound champion, it's an interesting fight to to think about and one that I'm excited to watch just because I have no idea how these two styles will really match up with each other. Let me ask you this. Does Justin Gaethje need a knockout in order to win? 
It's hard to imagine him winning a war of attrition against Tony Ferguson, is it not? Yeah. I mean, especially like over, a war of attrition. Over that, 25 minutes, if yeah, that's that, what we're doing here. That ends in a, uh, a judge's decision. Like, it's hard for me to imagine because the way he would have to win that war of attrition, I would think, would be he would have to take a whole lot of damage early on and maybe like come back harder but it's hard to like it's tony ferguson is not one of those guys where we've seen a lot of people be able to successfully employ that you don't look at that guy and be like well he'll fade down the stretch like he seems to just get better as he has a chance to figure you out and the fight goes on yeah i mean either justin gaethje has to win by knockout or he has to prove far more tech technically superior than than we are expecting over the course of five rounds right like he, the the his two paths to victory are either knockout or he just batters Tony Ferguson for 25 minutes. And the second of those two options is awfully hard to anticipate, especially considering what we've seen from Tony Ferguson in his most recent fights. Like it, it seems like Tony Ferguson really relishes those long grinding, uh, like grimy, gritty fights where he gets in there and, and does all the work he can do. Like that's that's Tony Ferguson's shit right there. So it's it's actually it's it's hard for me to imagine Justin Gaethje emerging victorious in a fight like that. Well, it's also worth considering that Gaethje has had to put together a training camp for this one on short notice. Remember, I mean, he was the it was already pretty short notice for the original UFC 249, and then said he was kind of pissed off to learn that the UFC just went ahead and announced him for May 9th without checking to make sure that he was down for that. And that uh, he had kind of, he said, you know, once he agreed to the first short notice fight, then once you commit, then you're all in. And then once you hear it's off, then you kind of take your foot off the gas a little bit. And then you hear it's back on for a different date and you got to ramp it up again. Like, Tony Ferguson, I think, for one thing, he was already preparing for the original UFC 249 date. So he already had like a kind of like structure in place. And if we're looking at for Justin Gaethje to try to add some new things in order to deal with Tony Ferguson, he has not had a whole lot of time to do that. And Tony Ferguson is the guy less likely to even worry about what you're going to do. He's just going to go out there and do Tony Ferguson hashtag champ shit only. All right. Well, before we move on, two questions. One, what happens if Justin Gaethje wins? Well, we all shed a tear over the Tony Khabib fight that we have wanted for what feels like our entire lives. And uh, we, there will be a great gnashing of teeth and wailing about that aspect of it, I think. But then I think it also creates an interesting future matchup. I mean, for one thing, it would be a little silly if Tony Ferguson does win. And it's like, he's the interim champion again. And this time we mean it. And we have to go through all that again. Because I think there will be a part of us that's like, okay, here we go again right back on this carousel where you're going to sell us this impossible dream of Tony versus Khabib. And yeah. Tony's going to be the interim champ until you decide it's no longer convenient for you. But if Justin Gaethje wins, then it shakes things up and you're going, okay, now we have a new guy in the, in the picture. And maybe with his style that he brings, maybe he's a more interesting matchup for Khabib than some of the stuff we've seen uh, Khabib recently do. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on uh, to round number two. Ben, I'll do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Because, it again, it references this uh, this story by Greg and, and Sean that's up on The Athletic right now about Tony Ferguson. This is John Anik talking about Tony Ferguson. Basically, the gimmick of this story, right, is they went out and they tried to survey all of these people, kind of a, what is your best Tony Ferguson story? And here is John Anik talking about Tony Ferguson. When he fought Anthony Showtime Pettis in 2018, I've never had a blood shower, 
like that, sitting octagon side before. We get splattered with blood on my note cards, on my face, on the front of my neck a little bit, on my shirt, but never where the blood is spewing over the top of us like a shower. I was getting legitimate dollops of human blood on the back of my shirt. And of course, it wasn't Tony Ferguson's blood, but he had no problem tasting it and fighting through it and winning another fight on style points. The UFC keeps all my suits, but I asked if I could keep that shirt and never wash it. And that's the plan. I still have my suit unwashed from Mark Hunt versus Bigfoot Silva in 2013 in Brisbane because we got a little sprayed there too. But this shirt, I'm hoping to frame it and do something special with it. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You think that uh, being a UFC play-by-play announcer might be glamorous? Like it might be the uh, the dream job, might be the job you want to have? Just consider the phrase, blood is spewing over on top of us like a shower. You fucking kidding me? Here's what I want to know. What does John Anik's wife say when she hears of the plan to frame that shirt and, quote, do something special with it? Is she like, I mean, yeah, you know what? Um... I was thinking the garage is a good place. Like we don't have That'd a, be a whole great lot place of to display that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in the garage or, uh, you know what, how about, uh, you know what? It's so special. Rent a storage unit just for that and just hang it in there. And whenever you want, you can go there and visit it and kind of look at it and think about those times and have that moment to yourself. I, you know what? I think that's the thing to do because it's so special. Blood shower. Well, Chad, you know Tito Ortiz is a longtime Huntington Beach guy. Yeah, the Huntington Beach bad boy. And you know that uh, Huntington Beach, California, is the site of a bunch of anti-lockdown protests these days. Oh, boy. Oh, God. I bet I know where this is going. So I'm looking at Tito Ortiz's Instagram, and there's a picture of a man on the corner there, right by the beach in Huntington Beach, holding a surfboard with that has taped to it a poster board that says the sun, it actually just says the with an arrow drawn to a, or an arrow to a crudely drawn picture that I think is supposed to be the sun, kills, there's an apostrophe, uh, misplaced apostrophe there, uh, kills COVID-19. Now, I don't know exactly where this individual pictured uh, got his degree in epidemiology, uh, but he's just out here telling us exactly how this virus works and suggesting that because it's sunny in California, you don't have to worry about it. It's all fine. Tito Ortiz posts this image with the caption, a picture with a thousand words, hashtag Huntington Beach, hashtag no more Newsom, hashtag free California. You're fucking kidding me. Fucking kidding me. Man, I was really worried that you were going to say that was Tito Ortiz for a second. No, it's just it was apparently gonna... somebody Tito Ortiz looks up to. Oh, here we go. So same song here. Uh, no, this is a this is a different one. There, I, oh, I this, them, this is a different track. Yeah, I asked them to hit us up with one of their dancier tunes, and uh, yeah, so they got this one. I, I, personally, I feel like I actually like this one better than their their main hit. This is sort of a remix, I guess. This must be like the uh, the twelve inch dance remix that you'd hear in the club. Yeah, this is the one where you know it's. 3 a.m. in Moscow, you hear this come on in the club, and people just go nuts. Well, I'm going to tell you what, it's getting me pumped up for round two. That's for sure. Well, Chad, 
It has been a damn minute since you've seen your boy, former UFC and WEC bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz in the cage. And when I say a minute, I mean since 2016. He got in there, he fought Cody Garbs, didn't go his way that night, haven't seen him in the octagon since, and now he's going to take the pandemic and do the old little finger chaos as a ladder approach, and he jumps right into a title fight against Olympic gold medalist and two-division UFC champion Henry Cejudo. Great idea or terrible idea for Dominic Cruz? Well, like I said in the intro, it seems like it's almost the perfect time for Dominic Cruz to sneak into the cage and fight Henry Cejudo for the men's bantamweight championship just because we know his history with injuries. We know what a difficult time he's had. He's had you know numerous fights scheduled and then he's had to withdraw because of injuries. It's almost like he doesn't want the MMA gods to see him this time around. So he's taking this opportunity to fight Henry Zahudo when there's a lot of other stuff going on that might distract said MMA gods. You know, they might be looking at uh, Gaethje versus Ferguson. They might be looking at the pandemic. They might be looking at, uh, you know, Cerrone versus Pettis. They might be looking at uh, Ngannou versus the Biggie Boy. Here comes Dominic Cruz on short notice, so less time for him to get injured, I guess, sneaking up to the cage to try to fight the king of cringe. In some ways, it's a difficult physical task, obviously, especially, as you said, with nearly four years away from the cage. In another way, considering all the chaos around this event, we don't know how everybody's been training. We don't know what to expect from any of these fights. It seems like almost the perfect opportunity for a guy like Dominic Cruz. Now, let's say he goes in there, though, and he doesn't win. And there are any number of reasons you could think of like why he might not win this fight whether it's just that Henry Cejudo is on top of his shit right now or that Dominic Cruz had to kind of rush to get back in here after so long away and that even if you don't believe in ring rust shit man four years away and then jumping in against Henry Cejudo is a tall order if he doesn't win is that kind of it because not that a loss to Henry Cejudo would necessarily mean you're washed up but after all that time away you come back you jump right into the title picture, and if you don't win, like how hard would it be to climb back into the title picture? And how long would you, a stretch would you have to put together in a career where putting together long, consistent stretches of being healthy and not being injured has been the really the main challenge for Dominic Cruz? Do you think if he if he doesn't win this one, does he just go well? I should just be a full time commentator now and decide that it, my day has passed. It's a great question. I mean, in a lot of ways, Dominic Cruz has been living on borrowed time as a professional fighter for a while now. And so it wouldn't be all that surprising if he just doesn't have very much athletic life left. You know, if he does lose this fight and he were, and he were to make that decision to just be a commentator, I think you could understand it both from an athletic standpoint and from the standpoint that Dominic Cruz seems like a smart guy. He seems like a guy who understands he's got other opportunities in life and maybe it just you know, because of the way that his body kind of continually betrayed him, maybe he's just not going to make good fully on the athletic, uh, uh, you know, prowess that he once had, or the, like the promise of his previous athletic career. On the other hand, it's tough to see Dominic Cruz walking away after this fight, win, lose, or draw. I mean, if he wins, frankly, it would be a surprise. Like, I don't necessarily think anybody's expecting Dominic Cruz to go in there and beat Henry Cejudo just because of how good Cejudo's been and how long Cruz has been away from the game. And if he were to win, it would definitely be like an upset and a moment for Dominic Cruz that would rival his win over TJ Dillashaw back in 
January 2016 when he came in after being away, you know, almost two years and won the UFC Bantamweight Championship uh, in kind of surprising fashion from a guy in Dillashaw who was at the top of the game uh, for that moment. So it's not like that Dominic Cruz can't do it, but if he did do it, I think he would have a hard time walking away because then he would be the damn champ. And if he didn't do it, well, I think as a as a competitor, Ben, isn't it pretty easy to look at this fight and be like, well, I came in on short notice, you know, it was a, like it didn't really have a, a, a traditional training camp. It was such a weird time. Nobody knew really what was happening. It's my first fight in four years. I'll do something else next. I'll fight someone else. It's hard for me to imagine Dominic Cruz taking the final the, taking this fight no matter how it turns out, kind of as the final word on his career. I think that he would want to soldier on if his body would allow him to. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't think he would be able to live with that being his final performance if he were at all physically able to get back in the cage again. But like you said, though, if he does come back after four years away, jumps right in there, beats Henry Cejudo for the title, that has to be considered one of the great comeback stories of all time in MMA. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's probably even bigger than the TJ Dillashaw win just because, you know, Cejudo, I think, has established himself as pretty dominant. He was the champ champ. He's certainly, uh, you know, since beating Demetrius Johnson win the flyweight title, like he's definitely been regarded as a more complete MMA fighter. Like he kind of found this new style for himself somewhere along the way during his transition from an Olympic wrestler into an MMA fighter. So he's been, you know, he, I think we all – look at Henry Zahudo and are like, wow, that guy's, you know, regardless of how you feel about the gimmick that he's running, that guy's pretty damn good. So it would be an upset for Dominic Cruz to win. But at the same time, like Cruz has a, one of those tricky styles that's hard to prepare for. And Henry Cejudo comes into this thing on, on short notice in terms of who his opponent is going to be just in the same way Dominic Cruz does. So like it would be a huge upset, but it wouldn't also be crazy. It wouldn't be something that we thought was not in the realm of possibility. Yeah. That's true. I mean, the, the interesting thing to me is going to be to see exactly the kind of style that we see play out here. Because we know what Dominic Cruz does, and we also know that Henry Cejudo, like one thing, I was really impressed when you saw that fight, uh, the Henry Cejudo's title defense against uh, Marlon Moraes there, or he, he was not winning the early going of that fight. It looked like Marlon Moraes kind of had his number, and he figured it out as it went and just wore him down. And Dominic Cruz has a tricky, unique style to deal with. I mean, the I guess the nice thing about it is you, you got some tape on it. You can go back and you can look at it and feel like, okay, even though it's been four years, he's probably not going to come with an entirely different approach. You know, you might have a few new wrinkles to that game, but you kind of know what you're going to see from Dominic Cruz. The, the hard part is uh, countering it. And yet, like after he was able to figure out what was going wrong for him earlier on in that Marlon Moraes fight, I'm interested to see how Henry Cejudo will adapt as the fight goes on and as he actually gets a chance to see what Dominic Cruz brings. Yeah, you know, so much stuff happens in this day and age in the, the current world of mixed martial arts that like a lot of these performances get overshadowed and swept under the rug because we have to move on to the next thing, whatever's happening the next weekend. But that Henry Cejudo comeback against Marlon Moraes is one of the most impressive championship performances that I think I've ever seen. Like you talk about hashtag champ shit only the way Henry Cejudo looked like he was not going to win that fight. And then is able to kind of, uh, harness, I think like not only the desire and the, the, the cardio, but also just sort of the courage to turn the tide and, 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 uh, 
you know, to keep the title is amazing. And it really said a lot about who Henry Zahudo is as an athlete and who he is as a fighter and a competitor, and frankly, who he is as a champion. And that's one of the things that I think makes it so that we look at Henry Zahudo in this fight and we think, man, this guy's pretty hard to beat right now. And yet, at the same time, those were all things we said about Dominic Cruz at one time. And yeah. Cruz might be 35 years old now, uh, but you know, like mentally, he's probably at the top of his game. Competition wise, he's probably at the top of his game. And like physically, is if he is able to get in there and do it and avoid any kind of rust, uh, you know, Henry Cejudo may well end up having his hands full. I have no idea. Uh, for me, though, I wonder if Henry Cejudo wins this, he beats Dominic Cruz. And it'll be like he got to do what he wanted to do anyway, is which is fight a old champion, like a like a former champion who still has a name. I mean, that seems what he wanted out of the Jose Aldo thing, somebody that would bring some views just because he has a name attached to him. If he if he gets to do it against Dominic Cruz, can we say like, okay, now you got to fight one of those real contenders next? Because that's what I really want. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good luck explaining that to Henry Cejudo, I would think. He seems to be on a fairly set game plan here. Uh, and, you know, maybe in his mind with Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw, and Marlon Moraes back-to-back-to-back, maybe he's earned it. Uh, but at the same time, like, w- I think people are going to start getting incredibly frustrated with Henry Cejudo uh, if he doesn't, in his next fight, take on somebody like Peter Yan, somebody like Aljamain Sterling, somebody who at least is up there at the top of the leaderboard at 135 pounds, not necessarily like uh, 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 an old legend, right? Like he, I don't know that we would accept a, uh, a Jose Aldo fight at this point or, you know, someone else uh, who's a little bit long in the tooth, but seems like in, in Cejudo's eyes, a more desirable opponent. I think, and maybe some of it depends on how it goes down against Dominic Cruz. If he blows Dominic Cruz's doors off and we get like an early stoppage here or something where Henry Cejudo just looks leaps and bounds ahead of him, uh, you know, then he probably finds it hard to justify. Maybe if it's a closer fight, then maybe he, he has a little bit more leeway, but I would think pretty soon here, it's going to be time for Henry Cejudo to, to fully get down to business and start defending that title against the top contenders. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready for that magic? Here we go. Yeah. Coming back again. See, this is my this is my favorite one now that I hear it. This one? Oh. One of the you know B-sides, you know? But I'm, start, I'm starting good. to get a taste for it, I have to say. You know, now I'm starting to see what Fedor sees in this stuff. Yeah. going to be hearing this one in your sleep oh i can't wait i mean I, I doubt i'll be sleeping much if this thing's rolling through my mind all right ben well, the UFC has been holding its cards pretty close to the vest as far as safety is concerned, headed into UFC 249. This morning, we had a new story out from Mark Ramondi over at uh, ESPN that seeks to make some of that a little bit more clear, or at least it cites unnamed sources who seek to make that stuff a little bit more clear. We had an email sent out uh, last week that went out to fighters and, and coaches about arriving in Jacksonville for UFC 249 and and what kind of safety protocols would be in place, what they would expect from testing. And as we commented, you know, kind of time and time again, leading up to this event, it seemed somewhat vague. 
It was just sort of like you will get more information about testing when you arrive on the ground in Jacksonville. Now we have this story from Mark Raimondi, uh, which is is uh, citing unnamed sources that the UFC will administer both diagnostic swab coronavirus tests as well as antibody tests to uh, fighters and most team members, at least as they when they head into Jacksonville. Not we don't know what will happen after the event when they head out. And remember, as we said, UFC doing three events from Saturday to Saturday next week. So the Raimondi story at the very least, I think, seeks to bring some clarity around whether or not the UFC is even going to do swab coronavirus testing. Up to this point, like I said, they had been a little a little cagey about it. And that, you know, the the kind of in specific language that they used over and over again when they talked about what the testing would be like, I think had caused some people to go ahead and guess that they would not be swabbing anybody for coronavirus, that they would only be doing temperature checks and things like that. Now we have it out from ESPN that they will be doing some coronavirus testing. Obviously, this event going down under the auspices of the Florida State Athletic Commission. Ben, does any of this stuff that came out this morning or any of the things that have, have changed a little bit maybe over the last week or so uh, changed your expectation or your feeling about safety around UFC 249? Well, to me, what I just still don't understand is why the UFC thinks that the way to go about this is to say as little as possible publicly and not just tell us what you're doing. Because for one thing, as we see, it's going to get out one way or another. Like whatever you're doing or not doing, it's going to get out in some form. And we're going to just piece it together from different sources, different rumors, stuff that we're hearing like that. And so wouldn't it be better to just say, here's what we're doing. Here's what our plan is. And that way, at least then people know. And even if if some people say, okay, it's not enough. I mean, they were going to say that if they just hear the, they hear from different sources anyway. Like, wouldn't you rather be the ones that say, we're telling you our plan? Because then at least if you're telling us and you're laying out the whole thing, it at least doesn't look like you're trying to hide anything, which is the, and that seems to me the big danger here is that if you do this, we learn little pieces of it here and there from different sources, people who are either have knowledge of it or are actually there going through the process, and they kind of tell us afterwards, here's what it was like, here's what they had us do. And then people get sick anyway afterwards. People are going to be like, well, there was a reason that you didn't want us to know what you were doing. It was because you weren't doing a very good job of it. And I, I just don't – it seems to me like this is the worst of all worlds because you're not going to be able to keep the secret. I mean look around at this whole – process from the attempt to do it at Tachi Palace in April to moving to Jacksonville and everything now. At what stage has the UFC ever successfully managed to keep secrets here? Yeah. They all get out. So like, wouldn't you just be better served being proactive about it and being the ones to tell us? Because then at least, at least you get the attaboy points for being transparent and for letting everybody see what you're up to. Yeah. In some ways it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for the UFC because if they are if they are swabbing people for coronavirus and doing antibody tests, clearly you're going to have uh, a population of people out there who are going to be like, "Wow, how did the UFC get these tests? How are they doing antibody tests when testing is still su- such, you know, in such a sorry state nationwide and when tests are still as scarce as they are and you can't really do antibody testing in very many areas of the country yet. And there's been some questions about whether it's reliable, how, et cetera, et cetera. How did the UFC get all these tests? But at the same time, if you don't do the tests, then people are going to look at you and be like, wow, this is super unsafe. How could they not do the tests? So in some ways, I can understand the frustration or the or the hesitancy by the UFC. But on the other hand, we've had so many interactions at this point between the UFC and the media on this subject 
like Dana White did and has done several interviews. He did one with Kevin Ioli. He's done a couple with Brett Okamoto. You know, the UFC put out its own press release. Uh, we've we've had people interact with the Florida State Athletic Commission. Now you've got this Raimondi story. I think there was a Gareth A. Davies story that came out over the weekend uh, in The Guardian or, or one of the other UK publications. And at no point during any of those did anybody from the UFC say, yes, we are swabbing for coronavirus tests. Like they, the way that they discussed it was always so uh, sh- shrouded in mystery in some ways. And with Dana White telling us he thought the less the media knew, the better, that I had assumed they weren't swabbing anybody. So now we've got this report, at least citing sources, saying that they are swabbing people. Man, if you are swabbing people for coronavirus and you are the UFC, put out a fucking press release that says that. Yeah, It's almost to steal a phrase from Luke Thomas, promotional malpractice for you to try to keep it a secret from us that you are, in fact, testing people for it. If you're testing people for it and you're doing it the right way, tell us. Jesus, just tell us. Yeah. Well, and the to the damned if you do, damned if you don't point. I kind of – like I see that argument. But also if the thing you're worried about is the blowback from people be like, hey, how come the UFC has these tests? And we don't have the tests available the way doctors and scientists say that they – we need to in order to really knock this thing down nationwide. Why is it that your wealth and privilege can get you the test but not people who are actually in medical need? If you're the UFC, you can say, you know what, that's a very good question and that's a question that the government needs to answer is why we don't have these tests. We bought them. Like we, we found somebody who had them and who was selling them and we paid the money and we bought them and we did that because we cared about our athletes and we cared about doing this safely. And if you're upset that that is a possibility to buy them at a time when they're in short supply elsewhere, we agree with you. That's a problem. And But we're not the ones to address it. It's not like if we didn't buy them that then that problem would necessarily be immediately solved. Like we just did the thing that we felt we needed to do to take care of our people. And we think the government should take care of their people. I mean, maybe then Dana White gets himself into a problem with his buddy Donald Trump. But Whatever, like I think you have a ready-made counter to that argument. Like to say, like you know, you can even acknowledge, like yeah, that is an issue, and we hope that that, that issue gets fixed. But we got to take care of our people, and this is the way we thought that was the best way to do it. And that's going to be a relatively minor blowback compared to if you weren't doing the testing at all, or if you were trying to keep everything such a secret that we assumed you weren't doing it because nobody hears like hey, we're doing this event, health and safety measures are a closely guarded secret and we will not tell you what they are. Nobody hears that and goes, well, that you must be doing that because they're so good because the health and safety (laughs) measures are so stringent. You don't want us to know about it. Like that, that, that must be the reason. Like people are going to assume the worst in the other direction. And so if you have that ability to counter that, I don't see why you wouldn't just say it, especially because we're going to find out anyway. We have found out everything about this anyway. Like you didn't want to tell us where it was when it was in California. You don't want to tell us where it was uh, here. Again, every time, every step before you make an announcement, uh, people have been ahead of you. And so it, you got to assume that this was going to be another one of those instances. And if you do have like, a good protocol in place, it helps you so much, especially because one of the questions that we've asked ourselves in talking about this is what happens if somebody tests positive and we find out a week or so later after you know a week two three weeks afterwards like you need to have a plan for how you're going to deal with that and part of the plan could be like showing everybody how stringent your measures were and if somebody gets sick anyway then it's like hey man it's really tough it's tough to do we did everything we really could 
and it still happened. And now here's our plan for what we do if and when somebody does test positive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's still an incredible undertaking to do these three events, uh, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, I believe is what they're doing. Uh, there's no way to get the, the exposure down to zero. There's no way to make this absolutely airtight and safe. Um, but I guess at this point, since we're, we're, we are on this path where it seems like these events are going to come off, I guess the only thing I can do is kind of looking at this, look at this trio of events and hope that the UFC is able to pull this off and do it without any, anybody getting sick or without causing any kind of like mini outbreak or heaven forbid major outbreak or without, you know, in, in incurring any casualties, uh, I guess you could say like, I, no one wants to see anybody either get sick or die because of UFC 249 or the other two related fight cards. And so, uh, I mean, I, I hope that they can pull it off, man. I, I feel I think that the 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 news for them and the climate is a little bit better for them this week than it would have been, you know, if they had tried to do this thing at Tachi Palace several weeks ago. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a risk and it's still an incredible undertaking. And I, you know, go, time and time again, go back to the idea that the only reason that we're really doing this is because the UFC needs to get its hundreds of millions of dollars in program fees and license fees from ESPN, which, as I said at the top of the show, seems a little bit cynical to me. But I guess if you're going to do it. And God knows we all want to watch the fight card because it's going to be an entertaining fight card. I guess I just hope that it that, that you do it safely, that it that it comes off okay. But again, we probably won't know for a few weeks or a couple weeks after this thing happens. So maybe we'll all be holding our breath a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that I think that a lot is going to depend. I think a lot of people are looking at the UFC, a lot of other sports leagues, and everything. They're looking at the UFC to see how do you do this and how does it turn out, and. You're right that it would make it a little easier to feel better about it if it felt like, okay, we first asked ourselves when would it be safe and like what would the data say about when and where it would be safe and then we went according to that. And instead it looks like what the UFC did is went, well, we missed our last date on for a pay-per-view on the calendar. What's the next date we have? And then went kind of commission shopping for who will say yes, who will let us do it and let us do it the way we want to. And so it doesn't feel like the – built-in motivations are necessarily already geared toward health and safety. But if you'd pull it off, if you have these three events and a few weeks goes by and everybody's fine and you realize like you're showing other people, okay, it can be done. And here's kind of a blueprint for how to do it. Then maybe you come out of it looking pretty good, but yeah, yeah, it's just such a huge unknown right now. And a lot is going to depend on like how it actually plays out. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I'm perusing the internets today, and I happen to come across a headline from uh, ESPN Ringside, where it's a quote from Pauli Malignaggi. Guess what he's talking about? Still. Uh, wait, when Conor McGregor knocked him down in sparring? We both know what I did to him in the gym that day in 2007, says Pauli Malignaggi, meaning Conor McGregor. He knows he will get the shit beat out of him if he tries me. He gets stopped 100%, no doubt about it. Chad, these guys sparred like once in 2017. And Pauli Malignaggi's life has been kind of ruined ever since as he focuses like a goddamn laser beam. Even after fighting... Conor McGregor's friend in a bare-knuckle goddamn boxing match, even after all these years had passed, even while there's a goddamn pandemic on, 
Pauli Malignaggi, you pull the string on his back, and it's still all he can talk about is Conor McGregor. I guess this week, Chad, I'm just saying Conor McGregor doesn't need to beat this guy in a fight because he's already kind of conquered him mentally and just taken over his life. I'm just saying. Wow, just saying. What else no, inter- could you do to a guy? Is that you have yeah, one sparring match with him and three years later he still can't stop fucking talking about it. <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, uh, Ben, am I just saying stuff this this week has to do with Bob Arum, boxing promoter. So a couple of boxing-oriented just saying stuff he, here. I don't know if you saw this. He talked to uh, BoxingJunkie.com, another USA Today property, formerly of your uh, the uh, sister site of your former employer, MMA Junkie. Uh, Bob Arum is out here talking about how during the pandemic and otherwise, maybe what combat sports ought to think about doing is reducing the price of its pay-per-views. Okay. He says a $40 pay-per-view could be good for boxing. And I think probably good for MMA too. He says, uh, he's using as an example that that's how much pay-per-views cost over there in the UK. He says there are 50 or 60 million people in the UK. We have 350 million people in the United States. In the UK, they do a big fight over there. Uh, it goes over a million pay-per-view buys, particularly if you know it's in prime time in the UK. And one of the reasons for that success is that they charge the appropriate prices for pay-per-view. In other words, the pay-per-view goes for 25 or 20 British pounds, of which the government takes 20%. Uh, so people can pretty well afford that. In the US, in the United States, we charge 80 or more dollars for pay-per-view. People can't afford that unless they're going to have big crowds at the house chipping in. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, Ben... Have we really gotten to this place now in fight sports where the world is so upside down that Bob Arum makes sense? Is that where we're at? I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Check us out on Wednesday. We'll be back for the uh, live chat as well as the uh, movie club episode about the 13th warrior this week. And then again, Friday over on the Patreon for the power hour. And then one week from today, back again for the proper on Monday, where we break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 249. And we look ahead to these other two events, Wednesday, Saturday events for next week. Maybe we'll have a better idea at that point where all this stuff is headed. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. All right, hold on. I got to, uh, I'm going over here to check out this link you sent me. Yeah, you're going to want to look at that one. From uh, Platinum Perry's Instagram. First, you're going to want to look at that one. Then you're going to want to show it to your wife. And then I look forward to seeing the video of you guys doing the Flip Your Girl Challenge. Okay. This is the Flip Your Girl Challenge. Uh-huh. I mean, Whoa. you do CrossFit. Yeah. You can handle that. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I almost didn't recognize Mike Perry so clean cut these days. As you can see, a lot seems to have changed in life with Mike Perry recently. Yeah. I mean, Very I don't know recently. about the Flip Your Girl Challenge. That's, I'm probably not going to take part in that. You don't think you can flip your girl? Oh, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I that's just don't know, if, uh, I don't know if it's, uh, it's really for me. <laughs> I don't no, know I if it's part of my lifestyle. 40-something parents of three are the people who people most want to see do the Flip Your Girl Challenge. I mean, there's there's a lot of people in this house that I that I do flip and can flip, flip yeah. on the regular. Mm-hmm. Most of them are just a lot smaller yeah. than the average like grown adult. So you're making up for what you lack in size with reps. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs>